like our close Japanese friends, you know, would also look and they couldn't figure out like what was going on with one of Inash's things. I just asked all these people, I'd ask eight-year-olds, I'd ask, you know, businessmen in their twenties, I'd ask old ladies and stuff. Students. My students, yes. <laughs> My students who are uh, oh everything just got louder. Am I it's okay. Um so that is part of the process, and that was really important. I think I stumbled on that, and I think it's what really made this um, translation uh, take off. In other words, we'll be listening to the poet herself um, in a minute. I think it's important to show, um, I think it should be done, especially in this day and age when we have so much access to technology, um, and you can do things like this, like find a person in their native uh, voice reading. It's, I think it's a nice gesture to the poet, and it helps our English readers um, really sort of get a sense of what Japanese sounds like, especially what Japanese poetry sounds like, um, which is something um, I don't think many people have heard. Um, so that's sort of my quick uh, nine years, <laughs> or, or eight or seven uh, years um, since Goucher, because um, again, like I say, a lot of these people sort of have this question to me. They're like, oh, well, in Goucher, like, you were just writing, you know, short stories and stuff, which is cool, but like, how did you do this? And um, that's ultimately how I did it. Uh, moved back to Boston in 2017, um, published this book, I think, in 20, at the end of 2017. Is that true? In the last day of 2017, this book came out. There's a story there, we can talk about that. Um, and then, yeah, through 2018, 2019, uh, working on doing readings, and uh, we've just embarked on our next project, another um, Japanese um, poet. We think it's important to publish living poets, and there's a lot of dead poets, um, but it's, I like, Minashita's alive. <laughs> she lives in Tokyo. Um, she's a professor at um, a few different universities. Um, and she's considered um, to be sort of a thought leader in Japan, um, and someone who, who um, as a fem, she's a she's a she's a prominent feminist and is um, very critical of the current government, the Abe government over there. They have all these things, and she's always on the radio talking about them. But I'll get to her. Um, I'll get to her role in society in a bit. We can talk more about Minashita. But I want to, yeah, I want to think we should jump into Minashita herself. Um, and then after we hear that, we'll pass it on to Eric and he can talk about some of the process. This is also our process, getting these computers to work across borders. We need to work. <laughs> All right. Uh, so she's reading a poem called the Crows. Should we pass out the books? Yeah, you know what? It'll be so much more I fun. I think we can just pass out the books. We'll just do it for today. But we have a small group. We do it that way. And you don't have to take them, but if you want to like, follow along, I'll hand out a couple copies. Anybody? Yes? Yes? She's got her poem. Okay. Yeah, I got one more. No, it's fun. So this book It's is more fun. We could have a better chat nice. about the book if you have a copy. We this trust you to give it back, though. <laughs> this is page 57. Uh, this on the, what she's reading. Great. So we're going to have her read it in Japanese, and then I'll read it in English after. But, you can read it. Okay, yeah. Crow song. あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ、あ
ようやく呼吸を整えている衰弱し紛らの地面が季節外れに声抜きする猫の精神がだらんとぶら下がっているうるがうるぐるなるなるなるなるなるこの場所で私はさっきカラスの声に驚いて白く小さな木はを落としてしまった枠組み内部にあったはずのカタカナ名義の私の名前は永久落下の道をたどり私の影と君の呼吸を細く長く明るみとる牢の中に引き伸ばしていくでもその刹那カラス飛ぶ We made that recording ourselves、uh, in Tokyo in the、um, summer of in August of 2017, right before the English version of the book came out.、Um, and、uh, well, I'll tell you about Ms. Minashita in a little bit. You can see she looks kind of like a serious person in this picture, but she's actually very lighthearted and very funny.、Uh, let me read that poem, though.、Uh, what, what page was that? 57, did you、yeah. say? 57. And you can see, you heard her, her sounds of the crows, so you can see what we had to do. Crow song in the red food coloring sky. Rattling crows screw up the sounds of ridicule and victory. A chain pulling. Caw, 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 caw. Finally, breathing on the verge of death by weakening, where the cat's unseasonable caterwauling spirit swings carefree. Growl, wriggle, mew, 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 meow, meow. Just now, in this place, amazed by the crows' voices, I dropped a small white wooden frame. My name was supposed to be written in katakana letters on the inside of the frame. Follow the road's endless falling through the light and wandering. My shadow and your breathing stretched out long and thin. But at that moment, crows fly. I thought that poem is very、um, kind of interesting in that. Did anyone else just have a response to that? We like to break this up with some QA and stuff like that. Did anyone notice anything in that poem or like something that jumped out? I'll tell you what jumps out for me is the sounds. Definitely, that was something that was very hard for us to translate.、Uh, we finally had to go to the Peterson's Field Guide and like try to look up some bird songs and sounds for some of these poems. We really got carried away with the research. And I think Minashita drove Spencer and me over and over again to like intense levels of pain and research. I mean, we both like research, but sometimes it was like even above our level、um, what she was up to. And I also want to just mark that there's a you in this poem, but my shadow and your breathing stretched out long and thin. Like, I think there's a, an other that appears in almost every poem of the book. And we called it kind of a A post apocalyptic love story or something like that. This book is kind of a love story at the end of the world. Spencer mentioned that Minashita is a very critical, a critical、um, voice in Japanese thought right now. She has a lot to say about their language and their culture.、Um, <clears throat> the day that we filmed this video, we, we actually met her、um, in a、uh, community center on the, the west side of Tokyo. Which is just like the most like, ordinary Tokyo place, like where everybody lives. And there's this train, the Chuo Line, which we're going to hear about in the next poem, that runs east west through this part of Tokyo. It's a long ride from one end to the other, maybe two hours. So, I mean, it's just a straight line, and it's all Tokyo the entire way. You never leave Tokyo. You're just two hours in a straight line. So, we met her about like, halfway out. 
and uh, <laughs> and that's where she lives and she like bicycled over to this community center to sit down with us she's like a university professor of economics but she wanted us to meet because it was convenient near her house and um she just blew spencer and me away it was not what we expected at all japanese is a language of politeness and formality and she was so casual it was almost frightening um, and finally, Spencer asked her, he was like, we've been taught to speak a certain way to people, and she spoke a very different way to us, much more like friends, just totally casual. And Spencer said, what? Why? And she said, oh, Japanese, it's a hierarchical prison of a language. We're all trapped in it. And I, she just was explicitly rejecting the hierarchy of language that's imposed on, you know, anyone who studies Japanese, we start with the levels of politeness. So she was explicitly rejecting all of that. It was so nice, so refreshing. And then um, she forced us outside. I'm going to um, play you the one more recording for today. Um, she forced us outside at 115 degrees Fahrenheit, I would say, in Tokyo that day. And she, she that's not an exaggeration. It was literally like 115 degrees and humid, absolute humidity. And she wanted to take us on this railroad bridge, this decrepit, falling down railroad bridge, rusted out over the Chuo line, the train that I was telling you guys about, and read her poem about the Chuo line at that spot. She had two poems she wanted to read there, Sonic Peace, the title poem, and this poem, uh, Humid in Tokyo. So we're going to go ahead. I think we'll do Humid in Tokyo. Um, I'll have her read it, and then I'll read it. But you have to see during her recording, the, uh, the train comes halfway through. <laughs> And she has to decide whether to pause or not. Human in Tokyo. どうぞ。はい。東京スリム。中央線の両端は物語の開始と終了を引き受けず、目視したまま午後の時間。伝説とブロックベイの秘宝を斜めに切断し、凍結は地面から湧き上がり、その隙間に今日も。金属質の祝福は夜席率500パーセントのビルが立つ雲の埃からは空の代わりに純粋率の言葉が見える虚空を塗りつぶすペインターインストール済みです。と物売りは言う。色素乾六角形を片手に物売りは囁く。コンビニ
the first and last stops on the Chuo oh, line. Sorry, this is page 77. 77. So the Chuo line, yeah, that's, that was the train that went by. <laughs> the first and last stops on the Chuo line are the beginning and ending of a story I completely miss while napping. Furious freezing rain angles up from the ground, cutting wires and cinder blocks diagonally. The gap between buildings zoned for maximum per floor density is bathed in metal blessings. From the cloud seam, instead of sky, I see words in musical intervals. A street vendor says the painters who fill the void have finished their installation. The vendor whispers a hexagonal color wheel in one hand. In the agora in front of the convenience store, the conveniently unemployed assemble, drink, eat, smoke, trash, smile. Happy to oblige the ominous yellow signboard intended for commercial use. Smile. That guy living in a cardboard box must be writing some kind of unseen poem, you say. Smile. The world is sunny, frozen and sunny. The sun trembling and rattling, pleasantly sunny while trembling. In a sunny spot on a sunny afternoon, weddings, death notices, tonight's appetizers are lined up neatly, then tossed. The end of the world catastrophe keeps coming gently. Every time I step into a hole in the road, I see the setting sun of the world. Still, I can't tell if I'm seeing things or hearing things. Right away, a change of key. Today, the beat correlated to my pulse in six, eight time. I hear voices. Tokyo humidity for sale, sing the vendors in perfect pitch. Great. I hand over to Spencer Thurlow. So, of course, we said before, but if you guys have questions at all, just feel free to ask. Yes? I, in this one, mm -hmm. I'd like to know, I'm not a poet. I'd like to know the, the, the reasoning or the thought behind where you did such um, heavy intonations tonight after Taizus. Why, why that? Why different from the rest of the poem? I feel like we planted you. That's, that's, the, that's <laughs> the core of the book. And that is exactly it. <laughs> on, our, uh, <laughs> on our wonderful syllabus here, like, that is part of what we wanted. So thank you for noticing. Yes. Um, two nights appetizers on page 79 and um, actually throughout this poem and throughout the book you will find dots in between syllables and um, a lot of people ask you know what's up with dots um, and this uh, again goes back to our translation process um, and a little bit about Japanese so you got the mic you might want to move okay so in Japanese, um, there are three ways to write things. Um, there's a pictorial um, way, which is what the Chinese, which comes from China, is what Chinese look like. And then um, in addition to that, there are two phonetic alphabets, um, so much like our own. Um, and in normal Japanese, you use these um, interchangeably. Um, generally speaking, um, Chinese is for the older words that would have come from China like a thousand years ago. Um, and then there's another form that's more or less for grammar, but sometimes not. And then there's a third form, which is for foreign objects. <laughs> so things like bus is a foreign object. Computer. So, 
computer is a foreign, it's a non-Japanese thing, so it gets another alphabet. Um, and every, you know, Japanese people, they grow up, they learn how to use these three differently. Um, Minashita, in her poetry, uses these forms ungrammatically. So in a place where there should be a Chinese character, she puts a, um, foreign, alphabet. a foreign alphabet form in there. Um, so you're reading along and you kind of stop when you get to it and you have to think for a second. And especially a Japanese reader, you know, because they're not expecting that. Um, and it creates a really interesting sort of effect in Japanese. Um, and we asked her about it, we asked Minashita during this, um, or maybe in, in a long chain of emails somewhere, but we were like, Minashita, what is going on here? Why did you choose to write this ungrammatical way? And she said, oh, well, I want people to focus on the sound. She says, when you look at the pictorial, the Chinese character, people have an image. And I want people to be separated from that image. And so we were like, oh, wow, so cool. And then we looked at the English and said, how on earth do we do that? <laughs> you know, English doesn't have three alphabets. Um, we don't, I mean, English doesn't have three primary ways of writing. Um, so nonetheless, we, we, we decided to tackle it. Um, we tried bold. We tried italics. We tried spacing out the letters. We tried all kinds of things. Um, and what's really important here is we took each of these iterations. Um, so for example, tonight's appetizers, maybe the whole bold version in a different font. We took that to this group that I mentioned previously, this workshop, and we brought it to them and we were like, guys, what do you think? And they would always, they, they would downvote stuff <laughs> quite a bit. They'd be like, nope, bold is really doesn't work. I, you know, I understand what you're doing about sound, but this just throws me off. Um, and it comes back to a lot of where we come from as poets is making sure that this is as appealing as it can possibly be for an American reader. That's what we wanted to do with this version. We, there's many, there's actually, there are academic translations of Minashita available. Um, and they're very, very accurate. And they're, they're sort of beautiful in their own right. But I think uh, someone who appreciates poetry and someone who is a casual sort of American reader of literature would find them very jarring and um, ultimately just bad writing. <laughs> it's just something you wouldn't want to ever read for pleasure. Um, and so we, from the base of this project, really decided, hey, we want to get away from that. So that's why we brought these sort of iterations. Yes, we could like make an argument that bold was the correct way to do this. And we decided because we're poets and we can do that. But we wanted to make sure that real people, so to speak, would react to this. Um, so we came to the dots. And a good friend of ours named Gray Held who just published his own book of poetry, um, um, came up with this dot. And he said, I think this is what we sh you should do. And it just clicked like a dictionary. That's fine. We're used to it in a dictionary. That's right. Of that dot between syllables. Right. So when you want to be stopped in a word, when you want to figure out how a word is pronounced, you have a dot in between it. So that was just sort of one thing um, we had to bring through. And that process took, I believe, I don't know, up to six weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, because the way it works, and I'll talk, I'll read a few more poems after this, I swear. Um, but our translation process, sort of the way it would go, is I was living in Japan most of the time. So Eric and I would sit all down. All the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so I would sit down, um, and we would meet twice a week for 90 minutes, and sort of saw out a very, very rough translation, just what are the word equal in the other language. 
And then we'd sit down again and sort of write our draft, our what we thought was good poetry. And then that version would go to the workshop and they would come back to, with us and say, well, don't the dots, you've got to make these dots or change this word, or that's not good. And then we'd come back and work it again. Um, and then if it needed more work, even the workshop might look at it uh, a third or fourth time if necessary. Um, so that's sort of how we got through that. We came up, there's some other interesting um, interesting ways in which we had to sort of adapt the English version. But thank you for your question. Is there any other questions? Yes. You said that she was an informal speaker. Right. Is that, this, is, is she right informally? Is that why this yeah. is not so needed when she is informal? Well, it turns out upon a little bit of research that other Japanese authors have also used um, their writing ungrammatically. It's kind of a thing you do. And it hasn't appeared in US translation, I think, because people just didn't maybe didn't want to deal with it. It's sort of how do you, you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough question. Um, but I will say something about form. That's a really awesome question. Um, yeah. part of the same day when we met Minashta, we were very excited. Spencer and I had been uh, we made a little journey up, up up from Kochi where Spencer was living at the end of his three and a half years of not leaving Japan. Think about that. Like, I've been to Japan a lot, I've lived there, but I never spent three and a half years without leaving. That's a commitment. And he came back fluent in Japanese, definitely. It wow. was, he's being humbled right now that Spencer has the, uh, has really excelled at Japanese as a result of that um, kind of boot camp, <laughs> boot camp for the spirit too, to really immerse oneself in that culture. And he chose the most rural prefecture of Japan, Kochi Prefecture as his place because he figured people would speak the least English. So I went to retrieve Spencer at the end of his three and a half years and we took a little bit of a, of a voyage the, uh, from there up to Tokyo and um, to meet Minashita at the end of the trip. And we went to this waterfall in the woods in, in, in uh, a place called Tamadare Falls. There was a very famous poem. Um, Yosano Akiko, the great like Tanka short form master, had written this gorgeous love poem about this waterfall. And so I, I thought I had my anecdote from when I saw Minashita that I would tell her about this poem in the woods, this famous thing. And I told her the story, and she's like, ah, formal poetry. And she that was it. She just can't. She said, no, I can't with form. Free verse is all verse is free verse to me. So no, I do think her poetry is free of form in a delightful way. And anything, if it looks more like a Western poem, if you look at it, than it does like a Japanese poem, it's long. She quotes and alludes to things in Western culture. So no, I think she has truly and outrightly rejected um, Japanese traditionalism, including form. And I think that's part of her, her critique. We're going to read a couple poems and then. Yeah, uh, I think we should read. Right, do you want to read some? Um, is that we, we can just do best out. I think life has to remove up. Great. Great. I should read the title. We should read the title. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then go with this one. Yeah. Um, You're not supposed to do this. Uh, okay. So Sonic Pieces on the title poem is page 69. Okay. Sonic Piece. Under the Sun. My every day is replaceable, made of things I don't need. Whatever is in charge here is likely made of wire, and also the repetition of thermo-expansion. Your immortal psyche 
like the freshwater hydra experiment, circulates beneath skin. I embrace the, run the runaway substance at the point where my will rises white. My thoughts stagger on syntax. Only, only, only. Whatever survives definitely should not have survived. We always betray one another. Under the sun, my everyday has a name. Each time I call it, it disappears without creating even one new thing. We move while fighting, sleep while fighting, sing the world while fighting, only, only, but only. I wave to you from the top of our sugar-coated trash castle, an omen of the blue of the open blue sky beyond my sight. The smell of moisture is rolled up into border crossing rain that will soon fall on the world without a sound. I gently disperse the nutrients I've picked up under the sun. At the stroke of high noon, at this particular place, a sonic rain falls, called to an underground water vein. Your spirit changes key again and drinks my shadow's unconditional surrender. Rain dances loudly. That poem, we published that in uh, World Literature Today, on an edition on dystopian visions. Dystopian visions. <laughs> she is definitely a dystopian visionary. As you can see, there, there, there's always a you. So in very much, a lot of these are love poems, which we believe to be her now current husband. Um, and a lot of them are full of this vision of Japan. Um, rain features a lot in her work, and we, we asked her, why rain? And she said when she was growing up in this sort of suburb of Tokyo, the rain was the only connection to nature she had. Um, and so she feels that she has to include it in her poetry to give you sort of a sense of, of how, what she believes is coming. Um, we could talk a lot about her philosophy, but I think we should read another poem. I'd like to read... Life history. It is on, it's in towards the beginning on page eight. Yes, page eight and nine. Life history. I was born on the shores of the Devonian period. Above me, the red purple sky. I had four fins, raw like a waterfront unwalked. I was born on the maternity floor. Ten, four, seven, looking eight, five, five stories down, a construction site. I had three arms and 18 fingers and an electric plug for operating live musical devices. I was born where the beach rings with a primeval sound, the sun pulling alongside morning, the pre-deluge geological age. I was born at night in a room adjusted by a metallic voice, inside a perimeter of soundproof glass, the post-deicide geopolitical age. I was born in the Precambrian Sea, my transparent body 
wriggling raw. I was born remote, controlled, fiber optic, test quality, inner, alive, within. I declare I was born country of Japan, Kanagawa prefecture, another etc. town, suburban subdivision, post-advanced adult age, mass-produced type family, classmates with asthma and eczema, public elementary school, public middle school, public high school. I was born with mass-produced hopes, a mass-produced life history dumped over a mass of dead bodies. I was born in the eon of diaspora science, in the era of the panopticon, in the period of digital metaphys metaphysics, in the age of DNA ethics. I was born, in summary, all told alive, nothing special, me. So that would give you a, a sense of how it kind of answers a lot of questions, I feel like, in that poem about anything we need to know. Yeah, she does. Especially if I think about the rain and the nature and then hearing that poem and the, you know, classmates with asthma and eczema. She just like the, the dreadful ordinariness of her life and what was expected of her as a Japanese woman. And then in real life, here she is surpassing those expectations. This book won the two big prizes that a poetry yes. book can win in Japan. She's received, like, they are listening. They, they, they yeah. wheel her out for video and TV appearances quite a lot lately. Although it's one funny thing, I mean, we talk about, you know, we meet her and she tells us about how she's speaking so casually. She's like, you know, I'm, that's not part of what I'm doing. Um, but I met her, I went to Japan last summer and met her. Um, and she was teaching at a new university and it was, it's almost like a theological school. It's very focused on Shintoism. And um, a lot of like people go there to get sort of their religious, you know, um, certificates and stuff like that and so I was like Minashita like you kind of you kind of sold us this this thing here about how you're you know so against um formal poetry etc I was like what's what's going on on with that and she's like oh well now I'm just really interested in in the way you know this defines Japanese society on so many levels Shintoism is this ancient thing so I personally think that Minashita is more someone who just intensely loves to figure out the truth of things. Um, someone who's a philosopher, um, which was impressive to me. I mean, she, she remains, uh, of course, a, a thought leader and a critic, but it was just, it was nice, actually, a little refreshing to see that she was digging into something else. What's with the three arms? The three arms. I thought about the three <laughs> arms, <laughs> 18 fingers. Yeah. It's the yeah. hybrid, I mean, I could say this, I feel for me it's the like hybrid a hybrid of, of technology and human, yeah. exactly. And um, there's another poem in my you circuits, are, yeah, I've just thought about that. Uh, that asymmetric? Is that asymmetric? She has a bunch of poems here where she has um, kind of turning into a robot. Uh, I think, no, of course, it's marginal, page 28. And actually, this is. <laughs> I'll read the poem. Thank you. That's a wonderful question. She has two versions, two versions of this poem in the book. She puts this version and then another version. She repeats the whole poem and adds another section. I think I don't know if I'd have the guts to do that in my own book to admit that there's multiple versions of my poem out there. But yeah. she delightfully embraces that. I think 
um, what Spencer was alluding to is that Linajda is so intelligent that she can thrive only by changing her mind frequently. Marginal. At dawn, an image pushes faintly through the ground. Through my circuits every day, your data circulates. Just now, the wind drinks heat melted by jet engines approaching the sound barrier. At that place, I draw the inner perimeter, the strength of the landscape. With a whisper, the strange digitized land dances. Intermittent noise of a violent mob oozily swollen with the pain of phonemes. Waves of cordless, endless conversations. The place where you were, the point where you are. Eras are always the future. The future is always nostalgia. Can you see it? The warm underlayers, the sky's upper scale, the points where boundaries are dropped and below that surface a fairly wide world. The view is cut into hardened marbles by a drilling rig swung down. I feel the wasteland's inner pain. At that place, the peripheral world dissolves into beginnings and endings, a painful duet. I don't know, do you think she's on an airplane in that poem? I felt like maybe she was on an airplane, <laughs> like the way that the landscape, but then I realized it was a digitized landscape. It's kind of, could be the inner landscape, but uh, it could actually be a real landscape. I often found when Spencer and I asked Minashta a concrete question about a poem, we were often kind of disappointed by how prosaic the answers were, she'll make a minor change and suddenly it's magical, you know, the, the, the digitized land dances. And we ask her and she'll say, oh no, that was a video game my son was playing. <laughs> it doesn't matter how she got her inspiration, she's made it into something that's serving her purpose and then we've done our best to liberate it in English. Um, where are we? Do you want to do the uh, title? Um, the cover? Good, okay. Um, so I think Vinashta, as you can see, um, goes a lot for just beauty of language, um, which makes her poems, you know, truthful also, um, in, a, in, a, in a sense. But uh, on page um, 39, there's a poem called Goldfish Friday, which is very sort of just real and in the moment. So I thought I'd read that to show that she can, like, write stories sort of too. Goldfish Friday. Since today is Goldfish Friday, all employees are required to bring their personalized signature stamps and line up outside the president's office. Mr. Takahashi from sales, who was in line in front of me, emerged triumphant from the president's office, holding a splendid, handsome, red lion chew goldfish and a large, round, glass bowl. Have a pleasant weekend, Mr. Takahashi said, and went home skipping gaily and with his free hand untwisting his necktie. All employees saw him off with envy in their eyes. Next, the president called out in his gruff voice. Awkward, I went in. He was wearing reading glasses. His secretary handed him an employee evaluation form. He glanced at it only once. <laughs> ah, you. This one's you. And handed me a thin plastic bag with a tiny black Popeye goldfish inside. 
so. We chose this poem to, as the uh, image for the cover of the book. Yes. We felt it perfectly encapsulated the predicament of Minasha and uh, what, yes. what she's writing about. Some sort of a goldfish. Would I rather have a goldfish or an employee evaluation? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, any other questions? You guys have any? You talked earlier about all the research you did. Can yes. Which, of which I got proof. <laughs> Can you tell me what that looked like? What what kind of directions did your research lead you? So, um, we mentioned earlier we had to do sort of research on phonetics or on the oh, um, You know, we went to I've got a list field like guides. Um, the research I did a lot was you know just field research, really sociologically, asking mm -hmm. people in my yeah. community what stuff meant. Yeah. Um, and how you how you do it. So we thank, we made sure to thank my students uh, on that. Just, I one or two more comments on research, though, since we're in a library. I feel sure. like I want to take the opportunity. <laughs> we all right. We had to learn what a bias cut dress was. Who Madeleine Vionnet was, who was the inventor of the bias cut dress. We had to learn what pyridine, the chemical compound, was. We learned what a coelacanth is. We um, it's a bony fish that lives in the the pre Cretaceous period bony fish that lives off of South Africa. We had to learn about Schiller. I wasn't sure who Schiller was. Uh, a painter, um, St. Uh, Schmidt Rotolf. She refers to Schmidt Rotolf's blue in a poem. So we had to look up Schmidt Rotolf. Um, Auguste, wait, 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 the guy. Um, no, Villiers de Lille Adam. Auguste Villiers de Lille Adam. It turns out he was a French philosopher. Um, Giorgio Agamben, we were referred to by one of the lines in her poem, so some uh, contemporary philosophy. These are just like off the top of my head, the ones that were kind of longest um, period for us to research not only why, but not only the what, but then why is she invoking the bias cut dress? Um, what is it then? And she finally says in the, in, in the poem, the way a bias cut dress fits the body is the way I must be read. I thought about that. So she doesn't invoke these things for no reason, but she drove Spencer and be quite mad trying to translate them in a way that would pop for a mm -hmm. American audience. Even a Japanese audience wouldn't know what two thirds of these things are. That's all. No, I research. That's pretty much what I could think of. Yes. So I have a question about the, the different alphabets and things. You said sure. that so contrary to the, nor the norm, she would use the Chinese uh, pictograph mm -hmm. for modern terms, but how how would she devise them? Because I would think the Chinese pictographs were sort of set in stone and there wouldn't be one for a computer or a, you know, iPad or something. Well, thank you. That's actually a very um, astute observation. She um, only, she didn't go that way. She only took the Chinese characters and gave them the foreign alphabet. So she actually didn't. She didn't create new um, Chinese characters, um, and I don't know of anyone who's done the opposite. She yeah, she did the opposite. Chinese characters oh. into foreign alphabet. Yes, yes. So how many characters are in the Japanese modern alphabet? Um, in school, uh, you learn about eight hundred, like up to eighth grade. It's about eight hundred. Twelve hundred. No, high school. No, you learn up to twelve. But by the time you graduate college, I mean you're supposed to have about two thousand. Um, and so each of those represents a sound, or how? Each of those it's Chinese characters is a unit of meaning. Is a unit represents a unit of meaning. Of meaning. Some are nouns. No, yes. so I'm example, talking about what about the Japanese yeah. alphabet 
What is that? Oh, there's the just modern... 50 letters, and they're, they're oh, really okay. easy. Yeah, yeah, we could all learn them. Okay. Hiragana and katakana. You might have heard these terms. Everyone knows katakana from reading a lot of manga and anime. You've seen them mm -hmm. a lot. Like kids, like kids these days often can recognize a few wish, from having watched TV. I wish I had a board. I, I know. Show. I feel like we can easily <laughs> get into that. But they're phonetic, so like a letter, like in English, the letter A like has the ah sound to it. But in Japan, it's always um, consonant or verb consonant. So it's ka, like akasata, like Takahashi is the name of it. That's one of the most common names in Japan. It's like Smith or something. So Mr. Takahashi. So if you wanted to write that in a phonetic alphabet, it would be four letters, so-called, ta, ka, ha, and shi. Um, but since it's a name, names are very old, and they come from Chinese, mostly. So that's actually two um, Chinese characters. Taka and hashi. Taka means tall, like high area, and hashi means bridge. So it's like Mr. Highbridge or something. I don't know. Mr. Takahashi. Anyway. Does she speak other languages herself? Does she that is very interesting. No, she doesn't. She speaks, I mean, she can read English, but a lot of people in Japan can read English. But no, she doesn't have very much speaking ability, I don't think. Do you think, she, does she speak other languages? No, no. And she, Adam Spencer yeah. and I often talk about, we think she may be the most purely Japanese person we've ever met. You heard the poem, Life History. Like she. She doesn't even envision a world outside Japan. She exists right now to try to transform her country. We're trying to get up some money from Boston University and Harvard, a few other places to bring her up to see us in Boston. And she said, I'll come, but you're not going to make me speak English, are you? At least that we promise we won't. Right. When she talks, so you mentioned that when she speaks, she speaks informally. And that that's different. Does she do the bowing that seems to go with? No, I was terrified that she didn't Norman bow. Japanese speaking. I was terrified she didn't bow to me. I didn't know what to do. I thought that I'd done something horrifying. <laughs> and she showed up late. She showed up ten minutes late, which is like an eternity. I mean, if you're on time, you're late in Japan. So ten minutes late is like. They wouldn't yeah. do very well here, then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's called... We loved her. It just took a second to recalibrate. I'm expecting this esteemed professor. I have my like language all set for meeting an esteemed professor. How I would speak honorifically to her. Like, how, you know, and none of that. I, sh I showed up to our first meeting in 2016. I, we went up to confirm some things. And I showed up in a suit, and it was really hot. And she shows up, like you said, late. And she's like, ah, oh, you wore a suit, huh? <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> we couldn't even do that. We just kept getting our signals crossed with yeah. this person. But yeah. then so I what realized did she that wear? Something very she's casual. a mom. She dressed like a mom. That was it. She was coming from the <laughs> dropping the your son off somewhere. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Well, look, we have to thank you all so much. And especially, oh, um, especially Ken for unbelievable um, organizing. Thank you for all the love that you put in. Yeah. It really helps. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> yeah, we have to eat all of that food, and we're happy to chat some more and like learn what brought you to this event as well. We could take it back if you like. Thank you. And I am going to get the library books signed. Oh, awesome! Oh, cool. Thank you so much for.
musicians around. We're not till too late. You might be able to come for the first half of the day if you like. No, I think it starts at like seven. So, so are you? Uh, my my knowledge of Japanese stuff mostly comes from the NHK channel on PBS. Oh, you ever, oh you know cool. that? It's um, too hard for us to watch in Japanese. It's <laughs> and they have this whole channel that's all NHK. And there's some wonderful shows. One is called Japanology. Oh, yeah. And that's why this, uh, I guess there's a half English, half Japanese. Wow. Yeah. 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 Yeah.